Hello, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is podcast number 49. This week, my guest is Professor Marcel Nold. Dr. Nold is a clinician scientist. He specializes in the research environment related to neonatal immunology and the lungs, as well as the GI tract. He also has a specific interest in microbiomes. He is currently working at the Monash University in the city of Monash in Melbourne, Australia. Professor Nold received his doctorate from J.W. Geth University at Frankfurt am Main in Germany. This was his medical degree including final year medical rotations in Zurich, Switzerland, Montreal, Canada, and Cape Town, South Africa. For his biomedical research training, he spent six years at the Pharmazentrum at Frankfurt am Main and three years as a research fellow at the laboratory of Professor Dinarello at the University of Colorado in Denver. In 2009, he was recruited to the Ritchie Center in Melbourne, Australia, and finished his special training in neonatology at the Monash Newborn. Professor Norald is a leading researcher worldwide in the field of immune cytokine signaling and was a key contributor to identifying interleukin-37, otherwise known as IL-37. His research has been published in the journals Nature Immunology, Science Immunology, and many others. His academic inflammation in neonatal disease research group and his industry programs aim to characterize underlying pathways of inflammation in early life diseases with a focus on interventional immunology in cardiopulmonary and intestinal diseases of the preterm. For the purposes of this interview, Dr. Nold is a researcher with a view of the maternal child dyad that is prevention-focused and health-span conscious. His research has led to many critical discoveries in the neonatal health space that I find deeply intriguing. We get into some deep immunology at times, which is critical for the total understanding. So I'm going to give you a little background information prior to the, co- to the conversation. This discussion for me is super fascinating because we, again, are looking upstream of the reasons as to the why we have disease, and in this case, in the newborn. We're going to look at the discussions that are on the microbiome of the intestine as well as the lung and other places. We're going to discuss some of the research that is coming out in regards to those enclaves of microbial existence, but also what we don't know. And there's a lot we still don't know. Part of the understanding is we get into the subclassifications of innate and adaptive immunity, and specifically part that we call the T helper cell, which we've discussed many times in the past in this podcast. But for those who don't know it, broadly, T helper cells are the cells in the immune system that are basically accepting information from the outside world via pattern recognition receptors called toll-like receptors and others, taking that information from, let's say, a virus, a bacteria, or parasite, translating it to a fragmented understanding of the protein structure, so then to teach the immune system that this is a player that is safe or this is a player that is potentially dangerous. And in this case, it'll prime innate immunity, which means recruit local cells to kill it if it thinks it's a bad player, or secondarily prime the adaptive immune system to produce antibodies so that if it sees it again in the future, it is prepared to handle it. And we really have to discuss it in the 
state of tolerance. And tolerance is the word that we use in immunology and in medicine to say, hey, my immune system sees X. X is not a pathogen or a danger, so it doesn't respond to X. If X is your self-tissue, if X is a peanut, if X is a pollen from a birch tree, those are things that the immune system shouldn't be responding to. But we know in science now that the immune system is responding to many of these protein structures in our exposome, our outside world, and it's doing it, doing it so inappropriately. And so why are these things happening? Where are these dysfunctional breakpoints? Well, T helper cells, these, as they're stated, helper cells, help us understand right from wrong. And they're primed initially into two main types. Now, it's really simplistic. It's a lot more than that. There's Th1, Th2, Th17, Th9, Treg, and, and on and on and on. But for the purposes of most broad discussions and classifications, it's really broken up into two types, Th1 and Th2. And in respects to pregnancy, the female physiology shifts to be what's called Th2, which seems to be permissive in allowing the child to grow inside mom because a child is a combination of genetics from dad and mom. And so therefore, if the mom's immune system isn't somewhat permissive to this child's mixture of genomics, it will abort it. And so mom slides into this what's called Th2 polarity, which is more permissive and tolerant to this allograft of a paternal genomic environment. And this is super critical because that's what's normally supposed to happen. And if you actually look at the immune parameters of a pregnant woman, they are highly pro-regulator cell, which is these Treg cells, which are what are sort of what we call dampeners. They help control the environment from getting out of whack when there's a pathogen or something that we need to kill. We have an elevation in, let's say, Th1 and Th17, goes, sends off a set of signals, cytokines, these things we, we talk of in, in our bloodstream, whether they're interleukins or tumor necrosis factor or, or different inflammatory mediators like gamma interferon. These fancy words don't mean a lot to most lay public, but what they mean to me is that they're sending out signals far and wide that states, hey, something's here, we need to kill it. And then when it's all done, these Treg cells should come in and send out other signals, say, all right, everybody, cool down. The threat is gone. Let's all get back to baseline. And a pregnant woman's body has an abundance of B and T regulator cells. Oh, by the way, it also shifts towards more TH type cells with more IL-4 and IL-12, and it shunts away from this cytotoxic TH1 environment, which is more prone to killing in TH17. So for most of us, that understanding is very rudimentary. And again, that's purposeful and useful in the context of this conversation, because that's to give us an understanding of the global picture of what mom's body immunologically looks like to protect child to make it to the end. And if for some reason that polarity is broken, like in the last podcast I did discussing potential upstream etiologies of autism, if that immunology in mom becomes dysfunctional, more Th2 than normal, or 2-Th1, bad things potentially can happen. And in this podcast, Dr. Nold and I get into some of the understandings of what that all is. And what are the lifestyle mitigating factors? What are the things we can do to potentially change those outcomes? And for me, that's what this podcast is all about. He is a phenomenal researcher. Dr. Nold does an excellent job of bringing the science from the bench. He's also a clinician, so not just the bench, but from his 
practical research in the neonatology departments of his university in Monash, Australia, so that we can start to understand as myself a clinician and you the parent, what are some of the upstream things we can lean on or levers that we can pull on that could potentially reduce risk of disease? And we get into some information regarding vaccines, and he and I both state very clearly that we are very pro-vaccine. But there's potentially some subsets of populations that we need to look into more carefully. And I think this goes to a broader conversation around vaccines and drugs in general, where we should be sub-analyzing populations to see who may unfortunately derive harm in a population. And those folks should potentially not be given X drug or not be given X vaccine to protect them. And that's a broader conversation for another day. But again, the science is what we're here to talk about. We're not making judgments on X, Y, or Z primarily. We're looking at science to make better decisions in each individual case or on a population health level. And so with that, I think this is a really fascinating conversation with a super professional, high-quality clinician scientist that is going out there and doing the lifting, the work that gives us ideology of potential change at reversing disease in modern society. And for me, it was a fascinating conversation because he's in Australia and I'm in North Carolina and we did this via Zoom roughly 12 hours apart. Super amazing stuff we can do these days with these technologies that we have at our fingertips. Just beautiful. Okay, with that, here's my conversation with Professor Marcel Nold. Well, hello and good day to you, Marcel, Dr. Nold. It is an absolute pleasure to speak to you. And for the guests listening, where do we find you? Um, well, uh, very nice to meet you as well, Chris. Um, I am currently sitting in my office at Monash Children's Hospital in uh, Melbourne, Victoria, Australia. That's lovely. And your accent says it all too. It's fantastic. And I'm so excited to get started. You are a neonatologist and you have a unbelievably special interest in immunology. And so we're going to dive deep down this pathway from 30,000 foot view as low as we can get to, to start understanding the underpinnings of disease. And I wanted to read from a recent paper you posted in Science Translational Medicine in January of 2023 called Understanding the Respiratory Microbiome, Immune System Interactions in Health and Disease. And you wrote, interactions between the developing microbiome and maturing immune system in early life are critical for establishment of a homeostasis beneficial to both host and commensals. The long harbors a diverse community of microbes associated with health and local or systemic disease. We discuss how early life colonization and community changes correlate with immune development and health and disease throughout infancy, childhood, and adult life. For me, being a pediatrician and having a pretty large interest in why we are seeing this exponential rise in disease, especially of the TH2 type or the IgE-mediated allergic type, there's been a large body of data emerging over the years about tolerance or breaks in tolerance and development. I think you are clinically very well suited to speak to this entire topic. And this paper piqued my interest when I saw it pop up. So let's sort of start with your view as a neonatologist, immunologist, and just a physician in general of where is the world going sideways as to why our immune systems as humans, as a species, are starting to abnormally react to the environment, the differential microbes, everything else as you see it? Mm. 
That is a very, very high level <laughs> question, as you as you said you would pose. And um, please feel free to interrupt if I'm going off, off on tangents. But, well, um, there are many, many factors to this. And I'd like to start by explaining that our knowledge of particularly the lung microbiome, um, but also to a degree of of the much, much better understood gut microbiome is really only starting to emerge. And that may sound a bit odd because we uh, started learning about the importance of the microbiome about sort of 20 to 15 years ago right? Uh, with some really pioneering studies um, that first established this concept and really, in my opinion, should at some point considered for the Nobel Prize in one way, shape or form. Um, from there, we've already come a long way, but um, it needs to be said that um, so far, the studies that have been conducted um, have heavily relied on sequencing methods that have consistently improved. Um, but nonetheless, still only give us a partial insight. And I'd like I'd like to explain that a bit more because it, it's really important to the context. Um, Absolutely. And, yeah. So, um, Essentially, you can think of it this way, um, the depth of insight that we can gain with today's methods um, has only started to allow us really to drill down to the level of the actual strain of bacteria that you know, are present or absent in disease or health, right? right. And um, to illustrate this really, um, for example, to, to just use an example from the animal kingdom, right? So if you wanted to identify a certain type of bear, you would really want to know, use fairly obvious traits, right? Like a black or a white, right? So I would identify mm -hmm. a polar bear or a black bear. Um, but while this is really, really obvious um, for animals like the bear, this is really, really difficult for bacteria. And again, has only very recently become consistently possible with advances in the scientific methods. So for example, with um, evolvement, uh, with the evolution of metagenomic sequencing as opposed to 16S RNA sequencing, which was the initial technology that was used and also bacterial culturing, which is a really, really important method that I think we will talk about a little bit later if you like. Yeah. Um, so, to just stick with the image of the of the polar bear, um, the older sequencing methods would have really only allowed us to drill down to the level of sort of class or order uh, to use the scientific um, taxonomy. And class or order, to use the example of the bear, gets us down to only differentiating between bear and dolphin or wolf, right? Right. So, um, and... To get to the level of, to use the example of a streptococcus, which is a bacterium that many of us would be familiar with, um, of which some strains cause disease, for example, in my patients, my baby patients, um, right. you would really have to use those modern methods. So why did I go to such depth? Well, this explains why the knowledge is really so limited and why at the moment we really have mostly associative evidence between um, sort of higher level um, bacterial, uh, you know, um, 
families um, or genus level information and health and disease. Right. 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 And so what are we now starting to understand now that we're getting closer and drilling down over the past 15 years about the association between what we know of in the gut microbiome or the lung microbiome and now disease states that are coming to play? And then how then can we start to look back in time and say, where are things possibly going wrong? I know we can get into some of this more later relating to how the the immune system may be polarized in different directions based on microbes, based on different upstream triggers. But what is the the lay of the land, looking at it from that perspective, now that you've laid out how the actual bacterial data is coming on t- online. Yeah. Well, so I've paved the way to uh, the, hopefully to, that I can get away with being a little bit vague. So I work very closely with um, uh, people who are deep, deep experts in the microbiome, This, which is a field that I've come in sort of from the side a little bit. Um, and fairly recently compared to others who've built their whole career on it. Right? right. So whenever we write a paper together, including this one, I always like to see, like to ask them, well, guys, can't you tell me there is this bug and that bug is a problem and, and that other bug, that's actually really helpful. And they consistently tell me, no, we can't really. And the background to that is, um, that's particularly in the lung, which is where we started, right? Um, the microbiome is very dynamic. We've That's one of the things we've understood. So, you know, from birth, you get colonized and that's influenced um, by various circumstances such as delivery mode, gestational age, um, and others. But then that initial colonization changes quite quickly and initial differences that can be associated with disease for example a reduced diversity of that lung microbiome which is one of the things by the way that actually emerges a little bit consistently as mm-hmm. as one of the problems yes right so that limited diversity even though it can be associated with later life disease then actually goes away at six months of age we don't see it anymore so if those associations are correct, and I really need to emphasize that these are associations, um, then something must happen early on. So and when I, what I mean by early on is the first probably weeks to months of life. Right. There's a big, some some event occurs that changes the microbiome makeup. And to your point, I think the only thing that I've seen in the literature, even in the gut microbiome is that that the lack of diversity is the one key persistent scientific evidentiary piece that can state, okay, if we have a weak uh, immune, I mean, a weak um, rainforest of bugs, that we are much higher risk of having some form of disease based on host genetics and other toxins and other environmental triggers. So in, in, in the case of what we're starting to learn now, and I, I am, recognizing clearly and and the literature states this too as you're stating that we're still way on the front end of this information but how do we now start to say okay based on what we have now do we have any data that we could state as it from your neonatology hat putting your neonatology hat on what data do we have to say these are upstream triggers that could come to pass as being major influencers of 
neonatal health that may be related to microbiome and is associated pattern may not. Initially, we used to think C-sections were a massive play in this, but to your point by six months, it doesn't appear there's a difference between the children who are born via vaginal route or C-section, even though it's very different early on. Where are we in this understanding? Pick any of the microbiomes if you want to go with them or even just the immune system. Yeah, so there are some risk factors um, that are clearly associated with neonatal mm, health and disease, particularly, uh, though that's particularly well understood in preterm infants, because of course they stay in hospital, we can observe them much, much right. more easily than, than term infants. And I've already alluded to a couple of such um, circumstances, and one of them is delivery mode. And delivery mode, as in comparing cesarean section with vaginal deliveries. Mm -hmm. And obviously, of course, this is not something that we always have a choice about. We and the obstetricians, of course. Right. Um, so we have to take what we can get. But cesarean section does um, via very likely via a, a microbiome route, at least in part, contribute to a colonization with bacteria that seem to not be conducive to health later on. Another such factor is um, gestational age. Um, and there, in, on that, my, uh, my passion really around the immune system comes into play because, um, you know, we could ask why would gestational age play a role? It's probably about the interactions between the immune system in the preterm baby that are different than in term babies and how these immune interactions um, shape the microbiome and also vice versa mm -hmm. that lead to disease. Okay. Another one is antibiotic therapy. And that's probably one that is also interesting in, um, in children and older children and, and in term infants, right? Um, the use of antibiotics obviously will lead to a, a lower or reduced bacterial diversity. I mean, like, um, is really very, very obvious. Now, while right. there is no um, clear association between certain antibiotics and certain diseases in um, in preterm babies that we can study, study fairly easily, it is very likely that through reducing this diversity, that antibiotic therapy co definitely contributes to some of the diseases that we see, for example, necrotizing enterocolitis of right. the gut. Um, so, how exactly that fits together will be the next step in the science. And I think for that next step, just to um, tag that on really quickly, I think it will be really critical to get down really to the strain level. And the way to do this is to sample from the lung or from the gut or even from the skin of the babies um, and actually culture the bacteria that reside there. Because then that will allow us to not only understand what the bacteria are, but also what they do. And then we can take individual bacterial isolates and put them through rigorous scientific studies and find causal relationships as opposed to the associative evidence that I've been talking about. Right. And uh, it makes me think of a recent publication in Cell by Dr. Hendricks and her group with a specific gut microbe called Bifidobacter infantis EV001 that is the only microbe that we know of that has all 19 genes for HMO degradation within the gut. And so that's actually something that has some relatively good immune 
based science behind it. So it's to me, it's starting to think of it from that perspective. But even looking a little bit farther upstream, what about the maternal microbiome or lung microbiome and how is that affecting? Because to your point, it, your speed, your research had been heavily uh, slanted towards prematurity. And so a child comes out earlier, the microbiome of mom is different between second trimester, third trimester. Is it the same in the lung? Do we know that yet? I know the gut microbiome is shifted over those two trimesters. And then the child would then theoretically get mom's microbiome or some variation there on differentially because of the timing. Is that safe to say? That is fairly safe to say, yes. Um, particularly if the child is delivered um vaginally, um, but also for cesarean deliveries, there's always a degree of maternal microbiome. And then over time, particularly if um, there is uh, uh, the parents choose to breastfeed, then or the mother chooses to breastfeed, um, then there's definitely some transfer of microbiome this way as well. To what degree is actually a really good question. This is one of the studies that um, we are doing at the moment. We actually sampling um, the microbiome in in the mother's milk as well as the gut and lung microbiome in the babies so i'm not aware of um in a major study published in this space at the moment although i might be neglecting someone i hope i'm not um, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> um the the maternal so you asked about the maternal gut microbiome. So my answer to that was yes, lung is very, not not very well studied. And right. that's to the fact that sampling the actual lung microbiome is hard in, you know, uh, healthy patient, healthy, healthy people who are not patients right. um, because you really need a, a breathing tube. And uh, that's quite um, in invasive. invasive. Right, right, right. Yeah, I would think it is. So then if we start to think about, and, and our guests have heard these words before, the T helper cells, the TH1, TH2 paradigm. And I know when I think about the immunology side of these, this world of mother-child dyads, mom shifts over into sort of a TH2 type state in order to have the pregnancy come to term. So there's not as much of a TH1 type polarity. And then I was reading some of your work and you have recently published that it's actually a problem in some of these diseases like pulmonary hypertension or bronchopulmonary dysplasia of prematurity that the TH2 even goes farther, which I found very surprising because I would not have expected that to be a net negative. But to some extent, if you think about allergy being a hyperpolarized TH2, maybe that does make sense. Do we have any idea what the major upstream triggers of the hyper TH2 are in the child? I'm assuming it's from mom. Where do, where do we stand there? Yes. So um, we don't have definitive evidence to answer your question directly. However, what we do know, and that's been known for a while, actually, is that the type 2 polarization is protective for mom and baby during this very special situation of pregnancy where there's essentially a hemiallograft that needs to grow and survive in in mom's body, right? So yep. in order to protect that um, fetus, embryo, child later on from uh, from rejection, like a transplant, um, mm -hmm. the type 2 bias is essential. And of course, not only mom can reject 
reject the child, the child could also reject, reject the mother. Yes. So right. both actually require this polarization to a to a certain degree. Now, as um, most of your audience would know, type two um, polarization of the immune system is um, generally thought to be pathogenic in the setting of the lung, really. Um, in other scenarios, it dampens type one and type three polarization, which um, are pathogenic in other settings, such as, right. you know, viral infection or such. Mm -hmm. So um, on this background of the type two polarization in pregnancy, what probably happens is that an immune trigger comes around and this can be different things and I can get to that in a second um, and that essentially enhances what's there and this is a, a again another concept that's that's quite well known so if you take blood cells from you or me and you stimulate them then you will at least with a sort of mild to moderate strength trigger you will observe an enhancement of the baseline so what's already there in terms of adaptive immunity so if you just had gone through a viral infection um like a week later you probably still see a little bit of type one polarization there yes mm -hmm. um so in babies in the mothers if such stimulus happens as in our publication then we did see an enhancement of type two polarization so that's actually probably concept conceptually what happens Yes. Now, to come back to your original question, what are the triggers? Well, we found some that we kind of expected because, you know, as I said earlier, type 2 polarization is often thought to be pathogenic in the lungs. So therapies, for example, that we need to provide for these preterm babies, um, respiratory support, for example, mechanical ventilation that they need to survive. We know that they harm the lung as a side effect, right? So we observed that such treatments augmented the type 2 polarization, and not only in the lung, where we, we couldn't directly look, of course, but actually systemically, because we looked in peripheral blood. Awesome. Yes. But we also found um, some unexpected, um, you know, data. So for example, um, hepatitis B vaccination and... Um, yeah, particularly hepatitis B vaccination, if given early, was problematic in this context. Now, I want to be very clear, and I keep on talking, but this is a very important point. I'm right. completely pro-vaccination, and this is right. something you need to think about whether you want to cut it out, because I don't want to send the wrong message here, yes? Um, no, I think it's completely legitimate to put the science out there. I don't think yeah. being uh, stating a, a piece of evidence that could push this towards TH2 and cause problems should be held back. So I think you're absolutely right in stating it. Yeah. Okay. So um, to, just to make it very clear, I'm absolutely pro-vaccination and I right. absolutely support the WHO's recommendation to vaccinate ne neonates against hepatitis B. However, this was based on the assumption that there was no harm to this. Now we, our study actually has identified harm in a very special group of patients. Yes. Right. And those are the extremely premature babies at high risk of a particular lung disease called bronchopulmonary dysplasia, as you said. 
Yes. So in this very small group of pa patients, we've got a special situation that I think needs adjustment of this recommendation. Yes. Because what we observed was indirectly that, um, and by association, is that early vaccination against hepatitis B increases the risk to have a type 2 polarization, which itself increases the risk for this lung disease. Right. Now that that is a, was an unexpected finding. I'm curious, because again, I, I think we follow the science. We don't follow policy or fear-based decision-making. I find that to be very intriguing. It when you know when I think about it, just in our the context of our country, even the WHO's recommendations for hepatitis B at birth was based in a time pre-testing, right? So it was when we didn't know if a mother had hepatitis B, so the risk was super high. But now that we test all mothers, at least in the United States, every mother is tested pre-delivery. We theoretically do not need to give it at birth anymore. So if there's a possibility, and again, I don't know this from study, I haven't looked it up. But let's say the hep B does polarize you towards TH2 even the first month of life. Could that then, in the context of an RSV infection, increase your risk of, let's say, asthma phenotype? I think that's a very intriguing question, Mark, that needs to be explored. And again, like you, I am very pro-vaccine. But I'm also mm -hmm. pro-changing my mind when I see better data that may potentially state that we're doing something not perfect, that at the time of its initiation made a lot of sense, but maybe not so much sense anymore. Again, I would rather see the studies before making a decision to change the current paradigm, but I would love to see some data. So I applaud you again for stating the science where it stands, not worrying about what other people believe in in, in the context of current protocols. So yeah, absolutely. So uh, continuing on that thread, so what else does potentially push a mother's system or in the context of the maternal child dyad to be more polarized in order to allow these diseases to come to pass? Are there other things like endocrine disrupting chemicals is one thing I thought of, dietary influences. I mean, what do we know of the context of the science, even associative? Yeah, very, very, very little, I must say. So what... We, where we looked in our study was essentially the last two weeks of pregnancy, yes, um, as in those that preceded that preterm birth in these mothers. We unfortunately couldn't look further back. So mm -hmm. that is actually very interesting. So it, the, your question is very valid. If we, if mom experiences, you know, for example, an infection um, or has a diet, a certain diet that you know, increases her own type two polarization, will that be a problem for a fetus? And then follow on question is, will it be a problem for a fetus that gets delivered prematurely and versus one that actually gets delivered at term? And those are, right. of course, two very, very, very different things because, the, you know, we have, don't have any evidence of harm of hepatitis B vaccination at birth in a term baby. And right. of course, that's, very easy to understand because they don't get that lung disease, right? Right. Um, right. They might get other diseases, which we don't know. As you said, could there be an increased, increased risk of RSV? Uh, possibly. We'd have to actually look at, at those things. And I completely agree. We'd need to do some studies. Um, and I would also think um, in order to answer your question better, we need to do more uh, in-depth analysis of if, effects of things such as diet in mothers on um on their 
on the immune, immunology of their offspring. And we are trying hard to do this, but these are studies that of course need large cohorts and right. uh, will take quite a while to accomplish. And again, the microbiome of course, and pre and probiotics are very likely to be part of the explanation and possibly also part of the solution once we get better at identifying the, so to speak, good bacteria and what they do exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, to the point of your work, it's intriguing to me that we're starting to actually look at these questions before it was prematurity associated with BPD. That's what it is. And you just treat the disease instead of looking upstream at whatever potential upstream targets are that could be mitigated or abrogated to some extent. So I love what you're doing. I think of some of the work I've been following Rick Johnson, who's a professor of, of nephrology in University of Colorado, has been looking at uric acid specifically as a trigger for many things, especially metabolic syndrome, but also preeclampsia. And the association there being in, you know, the uric acid has an effect on NLRP3 inflammasome activation. And could that then there be a major part of some of the disorders we're seeing because we're turning on innate immunity at the wrong time, or not that it's the wrong time, but just at such a high volume because we're consuming so much fructose or or other triggers of uric acid production via different pathways. So I, I again, I, I love the pathway, I mean, the uh, the path you're working on, I know your whole team there. I know I think your wife's part of your team as well to be asking yes. the questions. And, and so then the clinicians outside of the hospitals like myself could start getting better ideas of what to tell parents to do. Because again, I think simplistically from the anthropologic perspective, some things just make sense. Avoid chemicals, <laughs> don't eat so much Americanized, Westernized, whatever we call the the food that's highly caloric, highly processed, highly fat laden. I mean, these are some simplistic things that I'd love to see data so it becomes even easier to say them, but I'm not too sure we need a whole lot of data to answer these questions. But yeah, so let's pivot. Um, unless there's anything else you want to add in the in the tolerance world of of protection of the child neonate in in the future. I know we could dive into the Stein study if you want to, or we can move on to my favorite topic, which is sort of fading away now, but it's COVID. I just want to add one thing, um, which again supports your, your sort of concept of the importance of what happens in pregnancy, which is that our data actually showed that the polarization towards um, type 2 immunity in the babies occurred early on, as in in some babies, even in cold blood. And while yeah. it was, there was no real relationship that we were able to discover in individual babies that would determine, you know, their um, percentages of IL-4 positive T cells and IL-4 being a surrogate marker for type 2 polarization, the one thing that was consistent is if you started high, then you remained high, right? So there, there was something probably that, um, or at least in part, um, pri that primed this polarization. And because it occurred so early, I, I'm completely with you that this must have ha must have some pregnancy component, absolutely. And just one last thought on that. We've talked a lot about polarization and of course that refers to adaptive immunity prototypically but um this is just because that's what we looked at we actually have right. a lot more data um 
And actually coming from having spent some time in Colorado with Charles Dinarello, I'm very much an innate <laughs> immune person myself, really by um, through my history. Um, and I one family, of course. Um, and the innate immune system definitely also plays a big role here and probably through trained immunity in, in one way, shape or form, trained immunity being innate immune memory. Right. And I know Maybe you did a lot of, a lot of work in there. the IL. Right, right, right. I know you got tons of work in the IL family. I think IL 37 was the, was the big yes. one that you, you had done a lot of work on. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, so I guess the only other caveat there being again, trying to pull on a little bit more thread. So for the parents listening, you know, I know that there's some significant evidence out there, like, you know, again, referring back to the New England Journal of Medicine Stein paper, the Amish and Hooterites, what do we know about the exposure to endotoxin? And so for those who may not know what endotoxin is, bacterial debris. So it is a cell wall debris for that we basically call endotoxin. And that's something that humans can be exposed to um, in the environment from animals also inside our, our bloodstream. But what do we know now as from a neonatology perspective, again, when a child is born, right, this is clearly something we want to say postnatally, is there continued evidence that we should be exposing to natural endotoxin in order to reduce let's say in this case, the work was predominantly on the IgE mediated allergic type diseases, but just, I think for immune tolerance and just probing the system to be more immune solvent, do we, do we still follow that lead now? Mm. First of all, congratulations to Stein and, and group. And this is a very elegant paper and having this idea of, you know, comparing these two groups like they've done is, is really fantastic and great science, you know, often, starts with with those great ideas so it's really a pleasure to read that paper um and fascinating that they found such strong results from only um the the small number of children that they studied and only from right. one single point so really quite strong evidence now about lps so um while i would like to say yes to your question um, I think we have to be a little bit careful there. Okay. Um, because LPS is by default, if you go to any immunology lab and you say LPS, everyone has a knee-jerk response. Oh yeah, inflammation. Right. Right. In the bloodstream. So, yep. <laughs> exactly. And actually, if you go to intensive care units, they will say, oh, gram, gram negative bacteria, LPS, endotoxic shock, death. Yes. Right. So it the the key here will be to do the right thing at the right time in the right way. Right. <laughs> it's very conditional, yes. Um, and obviously, uh, it would be nice if I had the answers <laughs> to what the right time, the right place, uh, and the right age is. Um, I don't. But although, yes, um, I, from what we said earlier, I think uh, you know, early in life will be important. Um. Yeah, but I don't have these answers. And we need to be very careful because, again, LPS is a dangerous substance if used, you know, too much in the wrong place. For example, in the bloodstream, you really don't want it. Um, and its receptors or the sensor on the cells that senses LPS 
um, is associated with lots of diseases. For example, one that I um, mentioned earlier, necrotizing enterocolitis, which is a dangerous disease that affects the guts of our preterm babies. Um, so LPS and its receptor TLA4 yep. are really problematic, generally speaking. Yes. So yep. that just as caution, but but I do agree with you. Uh, LPS or something like it, maybe we can find something safer to stimulate the the immune system in the right way at the right time is definitely something we should pursue as an idea to prevent asthma and allergies. Yeah, I, t I tend to think of this stuff from the perspective of the anthropologic background. History had dictated that for millennia, we were exposed to microbes all the time from our living environments. It's only in the better part of the last hundred years, probably that that has changed. So I think the structure of what you're saying is very true because if we did start to intervene, i.e. that the way they did it in the mouse model where they gave the mice the dust from the two different homes and the endotoxin level is super high in the Amish dust and lower in the Hooterite dust, that there's a potential that one child out of a thousand could have an immune system defect in let's say the toleric receptors that could cause an untoward effect. So there is that risk and that danger. And I think this has happened to humans throughout history and we just called it premature death, but that mm -hmm. was not intervention. That's just life. And now we're unfortunately having to figure out how to unwind the realities of our choices is this ultra clean environment that's potentially leading to more problems down the road. I think what we're dealing with now with COVID where we had two years at least in the US with no disease relatively because COVID was the only thing running around. Everyone was locked down and was hidden. Now we've been a straight, almost 10 straight months in our pediatric office where our clinics are constantly busy with everything we haven't seen for two years because of our immunity debt. We have antibodies that have all disappeared. And so we're having to pay that, that immunity bank roll back. And I think there is some truth to this in history that if we don't, do the traditional natural route, we're going to pay the price somewhere along the way. And I think tolerance and inflammation are the two pieces that we're paying the largest price with now as a society, at least again, speaking from the United States, I'm I'm not sure about the Australian narrative, but in our country, our, our immune-based diseases and inflammation-based diseases are exponential now. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Same here. We, um, we had a very, particularly in Melbourne, we had a very long, very strict lockdown. Um, and um, we already paid a little bit of that price that you described last year. And this season, again, we're having high numbers of early, we're going into winter here right now. Right. Um, so early RSV, early influenza viral infections, high numbers and also severe cases. So yeah, absolutely. You're right. So with the last minutes that we have, I want to touch base on the the paper you wrote around COVID because that was a very elegant paper as well. And you were looking specifically at a, a reverse, almost a reverse engineering of trying to figure out ways to deal with the virus. You had the title of Bats and Men in Immunomodulatory Treatment Options for COVID-19 Guided by the Immunopathology of SARS-CoV-2 Infection. And so I thought that was super interesting because you're like, well, these bats get exposed, but they don't get sick and die. So why don't we look back inside them to find out what are their mechanisms for evading the coronavirus doing its damage? Now, clearly the virus is much less potent now than it has been um, for the previous three years, but it doesn't mean it can't mutate into trouble. History says it probably won't, but it doesn't mean it won't. And so mm -hmm. 
when you looked at that data, and again, one of the things I did notice very clearly there was that there's a big piece of the interferons, the early innate immune response. If that is delayed, messed up for some reason, like in the male pattern of autoimmune targeting, that therefore you give the virus a chance to get a viral load above that which is capable of the immune system of handling and you get sick. What do you think is going on upstream of that, uh, i.e., where do we think these problems are happening in humans that are allowing us to get this sick with this virus? Mm. Yeah. So first of all, if you allow me the short diversion, I'd like to acknowledge the, the teamwork behind all this. It was actually, sure. it is review, so it was not primary research, but it was a massive amount of work. And yeah. I definitely like to acknowledge the work that everyone who's on this paper put into it actually same for all the research that we do and you mentioned my wife of course but there are others as well who worked really hard to get all this done and in the setting of this particular paper there's I'd like to mention Aaron Irving who is our bat expert actually and um, the idea came from conversations that involved him and to you know he really um, had this fantastic idea of saying I work with bats they get all these viruses they don't get sick so um, you know, that's what his lab does, right? He tries to understand why and what we could learn from this so we could do something um, for human health. Um, so putting this together was was really fun, actually. Um, yeah. But to directly answer your question, um, so upstream, you know, you'd love to make a discovery at some point <laughs> that uh, your second uh, cheeseburger is actually a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately it, it turns out it never is right yeah uh, and you feel as a doctor and also as a dad <laughs> you feel a little bit like a broken record right um because we always keep saying the same things you know this is you know things that make you obese are bad they make you diabetic which itself is bad um you know these are things that we can actually influence and these are lifestyle choices that we that we make. And although again, it's, it sounds like something that your, your listeners would have heard many, many times. It, it's unfortunately, again, true that these lifestyle choices that we know are, um, have unfavorable effects on many levels. They do include the immune system. They do include the, the interferon responses that you just mentioned, which are critical to be strong at the start but then actually to abate, because if they don't abate, then you also get sick. Um, so these lifestyle choices that you make, they can influence how the disease course goes. There are, of course, other factors that you cannot you know, do anything about. I mean, we all get older and our immune system changes as we get older. But um, if we make those more favorable lifestyle choices, also including exercise, um the you can make sure that other than those things that you can't do anything about you have a better chance of having a um how do you say um a, a better chance of a healthier life for longer yeah yeah what 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 we some people call health span you know, the lifespan clears your chronologic age, but if you have a good health span, that means you lived it well along the way. And I think at least yeah. in 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 our country, it was clear that 
the vast majority of people who lost their lives to COVID had one of four diseases, which to me are all driven primarily by lifestyle choices of which food is the biggest one. And I think mm -hmm. it's vastly unfortunate that at least the governments of this country did very little to help promote that message to anybody. Uh, our message is clearly promoting vaccination, which was important, masking, which turns out to may not have had very much effect, and social distancing, which had some effect for a period of time, but then actually probably has a net negative effect downstream because of loneliness and people being locked in, in their townhomes and cities, which probably wasn't the greatest idea either. And then once it became Omicron with an R naught of whatever people are saying, 12 to 18, forget it. There's nothing you can do to prevent that spread anyway. So I think we sort of got to a point where, all right, now it's, you really don't have many options, honestly, other than to try and take care of self. In your work in this paper and other, other research that you've done, other than those basic lifestyle factors, do you think of anything else that you would tell your family to do on a day-to-day -day basis, supplementation with any specific minerals, or is there anything that you would tell your family other than the, the, the critical basics? No, unfortunately not really um, the, anything that I can think of um, in terms of positive things that you can, you can really do. There isn't really that much. Um, you know, we, <laughs> I just had COVID again for the second or third time, probably third time recently. And um, although it sounds, you know, odd, I'm, I didn't test, but it probably had Omicron and my wife moved out of the bedroom, moved in with the kids. We tried to separate a little bit and um, they should, should have gotten it still, but they didn't. Um, they were all vaccinated. I think, you know, those common sense little things they do help um uh but unfortunately not really anything that i can think of in terms of what you asked about supplements or anything like that and then That's and then the, fi the final the final question having your immunology background putting that hat on is there because i'm the more time i spend in this space the more time i'm trying to understand what's the most important way to maintain immune solvency at any age, but specifically as we age into the 50s, 60s, 70s, outside of nutrition, which clearly I would say anti-inflammatory Mediterranean style diet would be the most important, second most important, probably daily exercise. As the immunologist, what are you thinking from birth to death as the most important things to do for immune solvency, not withstanding any genetic mutations or something that can come to hijack you mm -hmm. so there are a few things that come to mind so first first one probably is be very careful with antibiotics right so yep. um i'm obviously not saying don't take antibiotics that would be silly right so there are situations when you when you absolutely need them but um don't take them when it's not actually really clear that you need them. And for example, you as a pediatrician know this much better than me. Um, you know, patients get prescribed antibiotics way, way too much in too many situations. And that is, will always disrupt the microbiome and systemically, right? So this is not only the gut where they end up directly, but also via all the sort of connections that we didn't really talk about, but there is a connection between the gut microbiome and the lung microbiome. And that's called the 
gut-lung axis and there is systemic communication, even with the brain, there's gut-brain axis, lung-brain axis, all these things. So they're all connected, yes? Mm -hmm. So antibiotics will disrupt that. And this this is definitely one thing that, um, you know, should be in the front of everyone's mind that if antibiotics can be avoided, they should be. Although at the end, I do have to add, if they are necessary, then they're necessary and they should be given. Yes, yeah. just to be very clear on that. Um, and then um, besides food and, uh, and exercise that you mentioned, coming back to where we started, essentially, the, you know, a, a lifestyle that has, you know, it goes back a little bit, I'm, I'm not saying to, to the, to the stone ages, but, um, you know, at least to mimic the lifestyle of the Amish, at least in some ways, as in do not avoid getting in touch with farm animals, do not avoid having raw, unprocessed food every once in a while, at least, you know, get out of your townhouse, get out of your, um, you know, home environment, get out there and get in touch with things that some might consider a little bit dirty um, and get your immune system challenged by these things. And I, while I cannot promise that it will always be in a good way, <laughs> yeah, it has a chance of being um, beneficial. Yeah, and I think again, putting towards your neonatology hat, what are those? What is the first thing a child starts to do as soon as it comes out of the womb? It wants to get on the breast, so it gets exposed to microbes there. And then, as soon as they're growing in life, what is the next thing they want to do? Shove everything in their mouth. That's their oral tolerance mechanism to taste the environment. Mm -hmm. If they're tasting chemicals, not good. If they're tasting dirt, not bad. I mean, I'd love kids getting their hands in the dirt, digging worms up. I mean, all of those things, I think to your point, brings more immune solvency and and that's what we want. Because if we have immune solvency, I think we have less disease and less disease is a better health span and that's what we all should be aiming for. So Dr. Nold, I love all your work. I appreciate your time tonight and taking on a tour through the hard and laborious process of doing the bench research that then allows guys like me who do not do the bench research to learn how to be better clinicians and how to give better advice to folks. So for that, I really applaud your efforts. I'm going to be following a lot of your papers. I mean, I, you know, it's sort of funny how they've all popped up in the past 18 months. I just keep seeing your name pop up and uh, it's going to be exciting to keep following your career because your work is excellent. And I appreciate your, your, your opinions and look forward to hopefully speaking in the future about more of your research as it comes online. Uh, any last thoughts you'd like to share with the audience? No, I think the the last piece of conversation was 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 a good finish. I'd like to say thank you so much, Chris, for your interest, and uh, it was a great pleasure to talk to you as well. And I very much appreciate you making time at this sort of uh, almost midnight oil type hour in North Carolina. <laughs> I love the Australian midnight oil reference. Appreciate you very much, Marcel. Have a great night. You too. Thank you. A fascinating conversation with some news to use, as Dr. Jeffrey Blaine would say, for us to think about moving forward, right? So again, I always look at the underpinnings of disease from the upstream realities. And in this conversation, immune solvency, yet again, for me, is one of the pillars of human health. 
And how do we go about having immune solvency in children? What are the upstream realities to producing a healthy newborn? And again, I submit that I think the biggest piece of this pie has to come from parents before choosing to conceive, specifically around dietary interventions, avoidance of toxins and chemicals, and then really spending time on other potential knowns, exercise on a consistent basis, uh, avoiding stress in a, in a chronic toxic form, and really looking at where are other risks coming. I really appreciate his commentary on hep B vaccine. I, for one, am very curious about is there any data on the potential association between hepatitis B vaccine and non-premature children. So far, I would say I haven't seen anything, but that doesn't mean it's not there. Have we looked for the signal? He's found a signal in premature children. That's a very important study to be has been published and to be further analyzed and, again, looked at to see if that remains true in repeat study. And so the conversation to me opens many doors on what we as a society of clinician scientists in the world, as Dr. Nold is, and as myself, just the clinician side, discussing the knowledge. Where can we as a group of knowledgeable healthcare workers and healthcare scientists and researchers keep looking, keep digging for the best and most optimal outcome for human health, and in this case, particularly the maternal child dyad? I look forward to following his research and seeing what else comes of the understandings of the lung microbiome, the intestinal microbiome as it relates to neonates, and how much can we learn upstream of this signal uh, for immune solvency? What can we learn about different choices that are being made in helping our human offspring have the best outcome? And what else can we do upstream of birth that can help produce the best and most optimal child outcome? So, I look forward to following his continued research and exploration of human existence at the earliest moments in life, and that for me is just a joy. So as always, I appreciate you listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please rate it on Apple Podcasts, and as always, hug those kids. Have a great day. And now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for educational informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and or treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This podcast does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship. Thank you.